1 Kings chapter 17. We're reading verses 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. God, we will never be able to show that love that you have shown to us. God, I thank you that in order to satisfy your demand for justice, that someone else could die in our place and that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us in the most uh, profound act of love that is possible and will ever happen. God, I pray that you would help us to show you that love as best we can this morning as we submit to your word. I pray that you would work in our hearts with your Holy Spirit and that we would surrender to that work. I pray for Paul as he comes and shares from your word that you would give him peace, God, and strength, that your word would come into our hearts with power, God, power to change us so that when we leave, we're different than when we came in. We are more submitted. We are more obedient. We are more touched by an understanding of your love. And God, I pray that your word would be infused with power. God, that we would show the love of Christ both to our children, to our spouses, to our parents, but God, also to our enemies. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Uh, last week, we dabbled around the edges, edges of God's sovereignty. Uh, this week, we dive into the deep end of God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, it's hard to maybe explain it fully, but what we mean when we say that God is sovereign is that God rules absolutely and completely over everything in this world. He rules over creation. He rules in providence. And by providence, we mean God's careful direction of every aspect of our life and protecting us and sustaining us, our present, our past, and our future. It uh, reigns in grace. And we find that the sovereignty of God is basic to biblical belief and it's part of our praise. In fact, when we sang that song, um, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, what we were doing was praising the sovereign rule of God in our lives. 
there's a vision that we have in the Bible, and that's that God is on the throne above. If we could peel back sort of heaven, we would see that throne, and we would see God sitting on that throne, ruling this world. And it's a recurring theme again and again in the Bible. We are told in explicit uh, references that God rules, that God reigns, that he is king, that he exercises dominion over the big things and the little things, that his dominion is total. He wills what he chooses and he carries out all that he wills and nothing can stay his hand or thwart his plans or say you can't do that. Sometimes though, we understand life doesn't get easier, it gets more difficult. And last week, we considered the sovereignty of God in life. This week, we consider the sovereignty of God in death. And we ask ourselves, well, did God allow this? Could God have stopped it? Did God cause it? Was it God's punishment? Does God have any control or power over death? Oftentimes, the clarity that we have enjoyed in life, and that song again mentioned it, is all of a sudden overtaken or consumed by a thick fog that seems to envelop us and we're in danger of losing our way. Sometimes the provision and the goodness of God becomes so obscured by the apparent harshness of God in our life. This widow felt it. Her words to the prophet Elijah was, Why have you brought this to my home? Why has your God done this to me? And Elijah feels it when he goes before God and he says, why have you put me in the middle of all of this? I don't know about you, but I come to a, a text like this and my head kind of overflows with questions. There is a tension in this text. It's pretty obvious. In my mind this week filled with years and years of living and walking with others who have been caught in such a reality as explained here. It's a tension that people find that they have put their faith and their trust in God and they have walked with God for many years or even sometimes for just a few months and all of a sudden just when we feel somewhat settled in our faith in God it's like a lightning bolt comes out of heaven and our life changes in a minute or in an instant even and the faith that we felt was so strong is now at risk of evaporating. For the most part, when our lives are about to be shattered, monumentally so, we don't receive a text that warns of some incoming missile that's about to hit our lives. We don't hear a siren blare that says it's time to move to higher ground. We don't get a tweet from heaven that says, look out, in about three days you're going to face something. It's more often like an earthquake. That out of nowhere, our ground or the ground around us begins to shake violently. And I think verse 17 in this text could describe the lives of many people today. There are some here who can identify specifically with this widow. But there's many more of us that can put our own really, really tragic situation into this particular text. God, why did you have me move halfway across the country to this little island in this place called Parksville? So much promise, and all of a sudden, my life is going nowhere. God, why did you give me such a good marriage with a man or a woman that I thought I could spend the rest of my life with, and now you have pulled the rug out from under my feet, and my marriage is in shambles? God, why did you give me such good health, and I have enjoyed it for so long, and 
Now I just got the call from the doctor and my death is imminent. God, why did we leave such a good church where we were to come to the island here and we're now part of Parksville Fellowship Baptist? <laughs> you laugh, but you know, for some people, it is very difficult to come to this church. It's not their home church. It's not where they've come from. It's not what they're used to. And it turns their world upside down. God, why did you, you fill in the blank, only to fill in the blank? So we have in this text right off the bat what I would call the perplexity of God's sovereignty. It's kind of like mixed signals that we get from God. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Don't miss the phrase after this or after these things. After what, you ask, or after what things? Well, after what's just been described in verses 2 to verse 16. There the widow had trusted in the word of God through the prophet Elijah that God would provide for her needs, that he would give her food day by day until the famine had ended. She had put her trust in that promise. She had believed that promise. And so far, God had been true to that. Her flour had not run out, and the oil in her jar had never run out. She and Elijah and her son and her whole household, in fact, had been provided for. She and her son didn't die as they had expected to do. Uh, they had lived. God had provided. He had sustained. This was what the life of faith really looks like, isn't it? And sometime later, though, the writer tells us her son became ill. And his illness was so bad that no breath remained in him. Let's be honest. He died. That's what the text is saying. He died. And it feels like we're kind of trapped in this kind of text, that we're almost spiritually blindsided. On the one hand, we have the hand of God, which is extended out with mercy and with grace to us in the provision of food to this widow. And then in the next minute, all of a sudden, that same hand seems to be withdrawn, and we ask ourselves, how can this be? Is this the same God? I suspect that many of us here would like to have a, a, a huge gap between verses 2 to 16 and verses 17 to 24. We could handle that. We could wrestle with a text that talks about God's provision and then think about that for a number of months, even in a couple of years, and then uh, come to another text that talks about God's sovereignty and death, death, and we would figure that out and work with that. But when they're back to back, which is so much like our lives, it hits us between the eyes. What are we to make of a God who both provides and perplexes? Who seems to be faithful one minute and then unfaithful the next? Who, who sustains life and then takes that very life away? Whose mysteries are, or mercies are new every morning and at the end of the day they're nowhere in sight? Job walked in that tension and that was what that song was based on. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. But we think about this. Is God not free to withdraw his gifts from us whenever he chooses? As a dad, when your child begins to drive and they are using your car, are you not free to suspend their driving privileges whenever you want? Are you not free to say, you know what, uh, um, uh, you're not going to go out tonight in the car? Um, it's my car and it's staying in the driveway tonight. 
They might not like it. They might not understand it. They might not agree with you, but it's your car. It was your grace that let them use it in the first place. It's your gift to them, and so you can withdraw that gift. In a much more profound and a deeper way, is God not free to do with what he wishes of his gifts towards us? In other words, do we have any claim to the goodness of God as we perceive it? But this all becomes fuzzied when you add to it promises that God makes. God had promised to this widow that he would give her life. God had promised to this widow that he would sustain her with flour and oil until the drought had ended. God had promised and she had experienced that. Elijah and her son and her household, they had all, all daily eaten from that and the drought was not over and yet her son was dead. When our world shakes, it really can take some time for us to remember what it was like before it shook. After all, hadn't the widow at some time been at the point of death and God had stepped in and out of his grace and mercy had said the flour will not run out and the oil will not go dry? She was preparing to die and then God sent Elijah. And the last months had been great as day in and day out they had gone to cook and there was food. But that doesn't remove the tension of this text. Why does God seem to give life and then take it away? Does not his initial provision to us make our distress more acute when he withdraws it from us? When we're perplexed by the sovereignty of God, we need to ask, can I trust God? That's the demand of God's sovereignty. Can I trust God? I've already mentioned that the Bible again and again gives us a picture of God on the throne of this universe. Ruling, guiding, directing over everything large and small. Exercising dominion over the big things and the little things. His dominion is total. He wills as he chooses. He carries out all that he wills. None can stay his hand or thwart his plans. As the psalmist said, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In another place, he says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God had sustained their lives and God was now, though, accused of being responsible for their grief. Job had articulated the theological and the biblical response to this when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But this widow was a long way from that confession. Right now, she was in the middle of accusation. And I think most of us have been there at some point. She says, what harm have I done you, O man of God, that you should come here and recall my sin and cause the death of my son? Do you not feel the anguish in that? Do you not feel the pain of this woman whose world has literally been shattered, turned upside down, and now she's crying out for explanation? She blames herself. My sin has finally caught up with me. Have you ever found yourself doing that when trouble hits? She blamed the prophet. You had a fault in this. You came to my house. It's all because of you that my world has been turned upside down. And implicitly, she blames God when she calls him a man of God. Your God has done this to me. 
the longer I live and the longer I walk in this particular calling, the more I am aware of the widespread occurrences of suffering and grief all around me. I'm only coming now, I think, to be aware of the pervasive nature of the suffering, particularly of God's people. I have had seasons where I have felt overwhelmed and I have had times where I've asked myself, do I really believe what God's word teaches? Do I really, really believe the promises of God? Do I really trust God? And this text opened that up to me again. Because when we think about this question, the sovereignty of God, we have to ask this particular one, can I trust God? And there are two possible meanings in that question. I think the first one is simply, can you trust God in adversity? That is, is God dependable in times of adversity? Personally, I think this is one of the most significant aspects of God's character that we can wrestle with as a follower of Jesus Christ. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust him? And I think, sadly, what I see to be happening, it seems more and more, is that many of our lives, both consciously and unconsciously, exhibit considerable doubt about the trustworthiness of God in our lives. And that's what the Bible asks us to do. It's who the Bible um, wants us to put our trust in is God. And so we need to wrestle with that. Can I trust God? Is he trustworthy? The second aspect or way of looking at that question, though, is simply this. Can you trust God? Can you trust God in adversity? Do you have such a relationship with God and such a confidence in him that you believe he is with you even in your adversity, even when every evidence of his presence and his power seems to have vanished? Will you stand on his word? Will you rest in his promises? Will you trust in his way in your life? It seems one thing to me to say intellectually and even biblically that God can be trusted. It's another, it's another thing entirely to say, I will trust God. It seems more difficult to trust God than to obey him. An author who helps me time and time again is Jerry Bridges, and he said, the moral will of God... That's what God commands us to do. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. Thou shalt not kill. The circumstances in, we, in which we must trust God, though, often appear irrational and inexplicable. The law of God is recognized to be good for us even when we don't want to obey it. The circumstances of our lives frequently appear to be dreadful and grim and perhaps even calamitous and tragic. Obeying God is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in the arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. He goes on to say, though, yet it is as important to trust God as it is to obey God. When we disobey God, we defy his authority and despise his holiness. But when we fail to trust God, we doubt his sovereignty and question his goodness. In both cases, we cast aspersions upon his majesty and his character. 
God views our distrust of him as seriously as he views our disobedience. When the people of Israel were hungry, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the desert? Can he supply meat for his people? And the next two verses tell us, When the Lord heard them, he was very angry, because they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. In order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith and not through our senses. The scripture teaches at least three essential truths for us to grow in our trust of God. One, it's to remind ourselves that God is completely sovereign. The second, to remind ourselves that God is infinitely wise. And the third is to remind ourselves that God is always full of love. And in order to trust God, loved ones, we have to remember that there is another perspective. The events of human history are inextricably intertwined with events in the heavenly realm. I have the following words that have been in my study for a long, long time, years. I think they were in my office before I even came here. These are the words. Things are not as they seem. <laughs> it happens at the worst of times, doesn't it, you know? Um, things are not as they seem in your life, in your son's life, in your wife's life, in the life of your other children. Things are not as they seem. There's more going on than meets the unaided senses. There is a God, a living God, a good God, a faithful God, a powerful God, a reigning God, an ever-present God. There's never a time when this God is not good. There's never a time when this God is not faithful. There's never a time when this God is not powerful. There's never a time when the God of the Bible is not on the throne of the universe. Things are not as they seem. And so rather than being offended by the Bible's assertion of God's sovereignty, we need to be comforted by it. And at the very least, isn't there just a little bit of comfort in this text, loved ones? That God is not afraid to show the full scope of his sovereignty. On the one hand, he sustains life. And on the other hand, he withdraws life. The third thing is that we see the extent of God's sovereignty in this text. At least uh, a diversity which is huge. We see his sovereignty in both death and life. One of the individuals that I was reading, preparing for this, wrote this. It is one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death. But can he do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim up? He can act across the border from Israel into Sidon, which we saw last week he did. But is there a border that he ultimately cannot cross? A kingdom in which he has no power. When faced by Mot, and that was the, the top god in the pantheon of, of, of the day then, must the Lord, like Baal, bow the knee? The woman expresses her thought that God must be sovereign over death. When she accuses the prophet of bringing death to her home. She assumed that somehow he had power over death. She blames Elijah, and Elijah's language is unnerving. I don't know if it grabbed you as Chris read it, but as Elijah speaks to God, he says, you also bought tragedy by killing her son. 
When we read texts like that, we want to just let our eyes go over them quickly, don't we? We don't want to think of a God who maybe can do that. Or a God who actually does that. But Elijah's confidence in prayer also demonstrates his conviction about the power and extent of God's sovereignty over death and life. Why pray if you don't believe that God has the power to answer your prayer? And so he prays, as we will see. Certainly, the Bible speaks about the fact of death. We might say first in general terms, it says in Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die. In the book of Psalms, it says every one of our days was numbered before we ever even lived one of them. We could argue that this is a general statement about death. We all have a birth time. We all have a death time. Um, as the writer to Ecclesiastes say, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And we say, of course, there's a general reality that we're all here for, a, I was going to say a good time, not a long time. But uh, um, that's maybe not true. The question is, though, does God's power extend over every life and over in every individual death? To be more exact, does God's power extend to the exact day and time of my birth to the exact day and time of my death? It would seem the Bible says it does. When Daniel came to speak to Belshazzar, he spoke to him about the God who holds, held his very breath in his hand. Scriptures seem to leave no room for doubt. They say, uh, God speaking, See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. In another place, the Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol and he raises others up. There's a world of mystery here, isn't there? There's a world of confusion in our hearts and minds. This is an aspect of the sovereignty of God that we really wrestle with. And I don't think there's a person here who would argue that they had a part to play in their birth. I think we all recognize that we were just born. We had no say to who our parents would be. We had no say to where we were born. We had no say to when we were born. We had no say to whether we would be a man or a woman. We were just born. I think some of us argue sometimes about whether we should be born. Job did. It would have been better off that I had not been born. But he didn't argue with God's sovereignty in the fact that he was born. But after we've had life for a while, we begin to form relationships. We begin to exert our will and our responsibility. And as we add this to our life, then there's a culpability when it comes to death. And we think, well, sometimes people die because they overeat. Sometimes people die because they don't exercise. Sometimes people die through murder or through euthanasia or through abortion. And does God's sovereign hand still then apply in those situations? Oh, yes. It's the mystery of the sovereignty of God. You see, God is able to control the course of our lives even when we are totally unaware of his rule. And I don't have time this morning to take us through Isaiah chapter 10, uh, verses 5 to 15, which is an incredible example of the sovereignty of God over individuals who never knew that God was guiding them and yet who God held them responsible for their actions. 
that God's rational creatures, angels and humans, have free agency, that is the power to decide what we will do, is clear in Scripture. We would not be moral beings who are answerable to God, our judge, were it not so. Nor would it be possible for us to distinguish in life between the bad purposes of human agents and the good purposes of God, who sovereignly overrules every action and planned means by accomplishing his purposes. Yet the very fact of human responsibility or human agency confronts us with a mystery. Inasmuch as God's control over our free, self-determined activities is as complete as it is over everything else. How this can be is a mystery. How this can be, I can't fully explain. Regularly, however, though, God exercises his sovereignty by letting things take their course rather than by miraculous intrusions of the disruptive sort. I understand the tension here. I understand that from the human perspective, this may seem illogical. But the problem is with our logic, not with the logic of God. Come back to the text here. This text doesn't add up if God is not sovereign over both death and life. Why would this woman again be mad at Elijah? Why would Elijah express the woman's complaint before God and ask him to solve the problem? Why does Elijah pray and ask God to raise him up if God has no power to do that? And in the world in which this was happening, there was a deep, deep battle going on between God and Baal. Who had power over rain? Who had power to provide? Who had power to sustain life? Who had power to take life? Who had power to give life back? And the answer comes back again and again and again. Not Baal, but God. So there's the perplexity of sovereignty. There's the demand of sovereignty. There's the extent of sovereignty. But finally, there's the mystery, or we might even say the wonder of sovereignty. God hears and answers prayer. If there's anything I hope you hear in these last couple minutes on this, it's simply this. That God's sovereignty is not a hindrance to prayer. It's an encouragement to prayer. In this text, we're confronted with this mystery. Let me just say, and just so you have this in your head, there's a symmetry to this text. It's a beautiful symmetry. There's a flow. Uh, the woman, after... Uh, she loses her son. She accuses the prophet. At the end of the text, she makes a confession to the prophet. The next step is that Elijah um, um, uh, declares, give me your son. And then at the end of the text, he gives back the woman's son. And then after that, Elijah takes up the son into his room. And then after the son is raised from the dead, he takes the boy back down to the woman. There's a wonderful balance to this text, which tells us then, well, what's going on in the middle of that? And smack dab in the middle of that are verses 20 to 22. I think this is the heart of this text. Two cries of Elijah. 
The first cry of Elijah is a cry of intercession. He takes the complaint of this widow, almost verbatim, up before God. He pleads before the throne of grace from her point of view. He calls out to God, he falls before God, and he says, God, have you brought tragedy on this widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? That's a really amazing prayer. Have you ever actually taken the complaint of another as they articulated to the throne of God? Or do we try and sanitize it? Do we try and make it acceptable to God? Do we try and take maybe even the, the bad language out of it or the, the, that bad theology out of it and say, God, well, I know they said this, but they really said, meant that. No, there's something about actually articulating the pain and the feeling and the words of people before God. God is big enough to hear that stuff. God is big enough to hear the pain of our lives. God is big enough to hear the, the, even the sinful expressions of that pain in our life. And sometimes I think there's a big help in those who intercede for others in actually taking the words and the pain of those people right before the throne of God. And that's what Elijah does here. He simply tells God how they're feeling. He tells God about their raw emotion. He tells God how they are speaking. The second cry, though, is different. Second cry, he pleads with God. There's a different variety of ways in which we pray, isn't there? There are times when we intercede, and there's other times in which we plead. Oh, Lord, let this child's life come to him again. <laughs> wow. How can you pray something like that? You can pray something like that because you're praying to a God who can actually give back one's breath when it is gone from them. Some of you might be ahead of me um, in your thinking. And you might be saying, well, okay, Paul, if God already knows, why pray? What's the point of prayer if God is a sovereign God? I think the easy answer, and it's true, but simply God tells us to pray. But I think it's more than that. We pray because prayer is speaking to God. He speaks and we answer back. He created us and so we are to respond back to him as his creatures. Prayer is sort of an audible witness of our relationship with God. You think about this in a marriage situation. That if there's no um, uh, articulation of issues and there's no talking in the marriage relationship, does that indicate anything? Does it indicate a strength of relationship? No, a good relationship is built on talking. Well, that's the same with a relationship with God. And so we pray because God is a speaking God. But I think we also pray because we are sons and daughters of God. We are his children. He is our father. He invites us to come into his presence as his children. You know, there is no sign on the entrance into the throne room of God, do not disturb. And I have tried to practice this, and I've done it most often, but not all the time. But it's certainly my, my, the girls in the office know, and everybody in the office knows, if my boys or my grandchildren or Kathy, my grandchildren aren't calling yet, but one day they will. But if they call, put them through. I don't care what's going on, put them through. Why? Because they're related to me. There's a sense, loved ones, in which we pray to God simply because we are his children. And that's what children do. They ask things of their parents.
So we pray because God is a speaking God. We pray because God is our Father. And we pray because God is sovereign. Again, I, I know I'm repeating myself. But if God is not sovereign, why pray? If God can't affect the kind of change that you're calling out to him to affect, then why are you bothered going to his presence? Does it make you feel better? You might as well be praying to a stick on your wall. No, we pray to God precisely because he is sovereign. Now, I think sometimes when we come to the Lord in prayer, it's not so much from the fact of this understanding that prayer changes things, because sometimes behind that phrase, prayer changes things, is the thinking that, well, if I just twist God's arm, if I just call out to him enough, if I just beg him enough, if we just get enough people to pray about these things, we will convince God that this is the right thing to do. I think, rather, that we ought to think of prayer as thinking God's thoughts after him. And we learn to think God's thoughts after him by familiarizing ourselves with him and by his word and his will. So that so often our praying then becomes his will. And as we pray his will, what does God say? If you ask anything according to my will, you shall have it. I think one of the most stunning verses so far in this text with Elijah is verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Doesn't that just, is there something like, I don't know, weird about that or mind-blowing about that, that the God, the God who made this world and everything in it listened to the voice of Elijah. I was thinking about Acts chapter 4 again uh, this week. I think it's so helpful as we're thinking about the sovereignty of God. But when Peter and John prayed, what did they pray? How did they begin their prayer? O sovereign God. They acknowledged the sovereignty of God as they were about to pray. And then how did they continue that? Who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. This is all his. He owns it all. He made it all. It all does his bidding. It makes sense then to pray to a sovereign God. And the mystery and the wonder of it all, though, is that God listens to us. I don't get it. I don't understand it fully, but I know that this is what the Bible teaches. So we come back to this text again, and we remember as we read this text that what's going on actually in this time is that there's a war. There's a war between religious worldviews. There's a war between those who believed in Baal and those who believed in God. This is a war that we looked at about Two months ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there we realized that there was conflict, there was enmity between who? Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as we looked at that text, that battle, that enmity, that warfare that started in the garden has continued to the death of Christ on the cross. In fact, that's when it was climaxed, and then it continues now until God comes back. That Satan and his offspring are doing everything they can to undermine the offspring of the woman. And that's what's going on here. There's a battle between those who worship Baal and those who worship God. 
started with who controls the rain, who controls the dew. It then moved to who can provide in the desert place. And then it moved to, well, who can provide in enemy territory, who can sustain life. And now we find it as extended even to death itself. Is there anybody that actually has power over death? And we realize that that's God. As we bring it to uh, end, uh, one of the things I have been thinking about is this is the first instance in the Bible that we're confronted with somebody raising somebody from the dead. As you know, there's a number of stories in the Bible, another a number of historic accounts. Some of them are sign accounts to remind us of the power of God even over death as this one. But some of us are meant to point us to God and to understand his power to raise us from the dead. Do you know that if you are in Jesus Christ, though you die, you will be raised again? Do you know that if you put your trust and hope in Jesus Christ, that though you die, yet you will live? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Do you know that God has defeated the power of death in Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who went to the cross bearing our curse, bearing our punishment, the weight of our sin on his shoulder, the sentence of death put on him, and that God accepted that sacrifice and demonstrated his power over death in raising Christ up? There is hope for every one of us here. And that hope needs to be sustained if we have put our trust and faith in Christ. Even though we might die, God will raise us up to live with him forever. This incredible encouragement in this text, loved ones. May God help us wrestle once again through this text. And may God help us again ask this question of ourselves. Can I trust God? Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for its help in our lives and its instruction to us as we walk this life of faith. I pray that as we wrestle um, with issues of your sovereignty as they impact our lives in particular, help us, Father, to trust in you, to hope in you, to know that in the end, you will prove yourself trustworthy and good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.